Blog Talk Radio. Try to do this thing with making the sound hot down. It never works. I can never do this. So forgive me, listeners, but once again, I screwed up the intro. And <laughs> welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you for joining us. And I'll just stop trying to be a, an expert in the technology, and I'll just turn it off when the time comes. How's that sound? Uh, thank you for joining us today. I have with me Donna Coker, and I am your host, Heather Stark. We're here today to talk about a couple of really important reports, one of which Donna actually authored or co-authored, and it is called uh, The Responses from the Field, Sexual Assault, Domestic Violence, and Policing. It was funded by the ACLU. It came out right about the same time that the National Domestic Violence Hotline did research and uh, brought out a report about the uh, law enforcement responses to domestic violence. Donna, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, I made a big big mistake in our promo, and I referred to you as Dr. Donna Coker. You are not Dr. Donna <laughs> Coker, but you certainly have lots of creds. You have an MSW, and you have a law, dis- law degree. So uh, That's uh, right. my apologies. I also have. I just you, don't have uh, a PhD. Uh, yeah, well, as somebody who's been working on my PhD for the last six years, <laughs> you know, I'm not I'm not sure that it's uh, you know that much to brag about actually, but I'll let you know if I ever actually make it. Um, we uh, I saw this report some time ago. It came out last year, but uh, I saw it several months ago. Fascinated by it, but also a little dismayed by it. Donna, can you tell me, first of all, what brought you into authoring the report for the ACLU report, and were you surprised by it, by the information as you were sorting through that information? Sure. I mean, what brought me to doing, I've been doing work on gender violence for a long time and domestic violence um, in particular, um, but the, the impetus for doing this report was that um, a, a number of things were happening. One, um, there had been efforts for some time to encourage the Department of Justice to put out um, gender bias uh, guidance for police, and um, there was some sense that uh, those, those efforts um, hadn't moved as quickly or as definitively as they should. Um, so that was one thing we were concerned about. We thought um, we had certainly were certainly hearing reports from people around the country, and we thought, well, let's see if um, if these anecdotal reports we're hearing actually bear out in a survey, and and if they do, maybe that would be useful. Um, the other thing um, that prompted us was that um, we had obviously seen reports about um, policing issues around um, domestic violence and sexual assault, but they had tended not to be national in scope. They had tended to be um, more local in scope where they addressed only certain populations, and we were very interested in understanding a bigger picture and and, um, and not only a bigger picture in terms of um, um, region, but also a bigger picture in terms of how policing and police responses were affected by or in turn affected other kinds of policy, um, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. And then third, um, the uh, Vice President Biden had announced um, that um, he wanted to bring together um, a big White House meeting, and, a, and one of the primary um, areas of focus of that meeting was going to be on police and police response. So um, all of those kind of things came together to, to make this a priority um, and um, it was uh, it was a collaboration between me. I'm at the University of Miami School of Law, and um, um, uh, Julie Goldscheid, who's at uh, CUNY Law School, and Sandra Park, who's a senior staff attorney at the ACLU. And then we had um, two 
um, students who worked with us, Tara Neal, who um, was an LLM graduate student here and who has a, a great deal of experience on gender violence, and Valerie Halstead, who's a nursing PhD student who's doing work on um, sexual assault. Um, so that was why we, that's why we did it. Um, surprises, I, I mean, uh, the, the things I think that surprised us that we had not really anticipated um, were that a number of respondents told us that particularly in the areas of sexual assault um, that they thought there was significant bias against young women. Um, that surprised us. Um, we also heard, really? yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, really, we, we, that you were surprised by that. Huh. Oh, really? Okay. I was surprised by that. Yeah, no, yeah. I, right. I, I, I was surprised by that. Uh, but maybe that just tells you more about, you know, the work that I've been focused on. Um, but we also heard there was, you know, significant bias against um, uh, poor women. Um, I don't know that we were surprised, but that's a question that doesn't get asked very often. So um, we thought that was a pretty important finding. Um, and uh, significant bias against um, um, women with mental health issues. Again, a question that probably doesn't get asked enough. Okay. Um, first of all, the the format of the study, the the way the study was constructed, was of interest mm -hmm. to me because mm -hmm. they took they took one month, April of 2015. And they tracked data, or they did this for April of 2015. That, what graphic that's, area? That's not true. I'm just, I, that's not. That's not. That's not true. That's not quite true. But you were okay. going to ask me about what geographic area. Um, no, what we did was we. The study was only open um, for a little bit more than a month. Um, and that's um, in part because um, because we really were trying to um, generate. Um, some information that might be useful for the deadlines that, that I've already mentioned. Um, but the questions weren't about data in, in a particular month. Um, the questions were about um, whether or not our respondents um, believed that certain things were a problem. Um, so let, let me just let me kind of give you a breakdown. If, is that okay? Sure. Um, oh, yeah, let, me like ask your, let me answer your regional question, though. I'm sorry. Um, so we had, we had more than 900 respondents um, and for a survey that was only available for about um, five weeks, six weeks. The responses came from all over the country. The coast were a little bit overrepresented. Um, the respondents were mostly service providers or advocates for survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault. We did have um, a small number who were uh, community um, activists whose work intersected with sexual assault. So for example, immigrant right work, immigrant right work, rights work comes to mind. We had a handful of law enforcement um, and we also had some attorneys who represent victims. So that was that, that's what our respondents look like, but the majority were direct service providers or advocates. Um, and what we asked them, we so asked them a series of questions. Not, not necessarily victims, but people who No, in fact, them. no, no. In fact, the survey was directed to people who are assisting victims. Okay. And, you know, for, All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that makes it a little bit clearer. Okay. Sorry. And then about this that. other report that I was talking to you about, but done by the domestic, National Domestic Violence Hotline, which found similar information, but they surveyed mm -hmm. actual victims and callers to to right. their service. So that's exactly right. Different thing, but there are similarities. So you know, we'll kind of touch base with that every now and then as you're going through the the data you found. So okay. ACLU funded this. You did it nationally, although most of the stuff, were, you know, it was, it was weighted toward the coasts. Um, well, our, we, was, ha we had a little, yeah, we had a little, a little more representation on the coast, but it was we had we had a pretty good response across the across the country. But I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, 
Okay, nope, that, that's, I just wanted to clarify what the information was. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, and it was primarily people who worked with victims, not necessarily, not victims themselves. Correct. Okay, all right, good. I've got an understanding then of what the information, where the information came from. So, mm-hmm. and of course, ACLU funded it, and uh, it was kind of um, uh, triggered by the thought that the DOJ needs to do some, some studies themselves. Mm-hmm. The DOJ ne- J needs to come out with some guidelines for gender bias for police. Were right. police officers included in the collection of this data? There, so the, the, the respondents to this data um, are a convenient sample, meaning we sent it out to everybody that we could find, right? Okay. Um, so, right, so we weren't trying to do any sort of representative data um, in that sense. We were concerned about um, that our responses came from all over the country, and we were very pleased that, in fact, they did. Um, but um, the survey was first... Uh, distributed by the ABA Commission on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Um, the it was then yeah. right, exactly. Um, we also sent it. I have a I have a listserv of about um, 800 plus people who are doing um, work that has some connection to uh, gender violence. I sent it to them. Each of us sent it to our own membership. Um, so we we sent it to thousands and thousands of people. Um, Normally, I have to say, what the ABA told us is when they do surveys, they are very happy if they um, get a response of more than 100. So the fact that we got more than 900, I think really speaks to um, the importance of the issues that the survey was trying to, to tap. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that is impressive. Um, so, okay, so you gathered this data, and then mm-hmm. they came to you, and or you guys, you know, said, okay, now we have to write up a report, and so you started right. analyzing the data. Well, what immediately hit you about some of the responses you were seeing? Were, were there a couple of initial in, impressions that you had? Sure. Well, so we have so the the survey is both. Um, quantitative and qualitative. So we, we had a number of scales where um, we asked a question and, and the respondent um, chose whether they um, agreed or strongly agreed, et cetera, right? Um, but then we also did open-ended questions. And, um, and, and I think what hit us immediately were high, how significant the number, the percentage of respondents who said that police, that there was a real problem with police hostility, dismissiveness, and bias. And then when we read the written responses and we saw the stories that people told, um, it, it, it was really startling. So on the one hand, I think we, we certainly knew that there were problems, but I don't think that... Um, I don't know that we knew we expected to get the kind of numbers that we got um, okay. and, 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 and the kinds of stories that, that we got. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of work in this area, and yet we heard a, a, a really significant um, number of our respondents said that there are very significant problems. Okay. If you are interested in this report as, as much as I am, and if you would, or if you have a question or a comment about the report, or for for Donna, please give us a call. That call-in number is six four six three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero give us a call we also have the chat room open and you're welcome to go in there it looks like we have a couple people in there already if you want to type a comment or a question there i can certainly relate it to donna so thank you donna so now how did you you know what what did you what did you see that was shocking to you when you started massaging this data sure um well i mean i i would say that we sort of we saw three significant things um one I've mentioned, and that is that our respondents, our, the advocates who responded said that um, there were really significant problems with police bias and hostility. And about um, 88% 
said that the police sometimes or often don't believe victims or blame victims. Um, and about 83% said that they don't take allegations of sexual assault or domestic violence seriously. But I think um, what really came through in a, in a very significant way is that asking questions about police response only along the axis of gender or only along the axis of domestic violence or sexual assault does not provide the complete picture most of the people um, who responded said that there are real problems with police bias um, that have to do with the intersections of race and gender um, or that have to do with um, homophobic kinds of beliefs that are anti-LGBT um, and that there's real police bias against poor people um, and immigrants as well. So we have about 69% of our respondents say the, that the police in their area who assist and respond to the victims that they're working with um, are sometimes or often biased against women. Um, more than half said they're biased against immigrants. Um, more than half, almost 60%, said there's a real problem with LGBT bias. And um, Almost 70% said there's a real bias against poor people in general. We heard a great deal about um, uh, race bias. Um, people told us that, that they believed that their African-American female clients received much harsher treatment from police um, than did their white clients. Um, they told us about anti-immigrant bias. Um, and anti um, and bias against people who don't speak English. So that that those findings came through in a big way. And oh, and I'm I'm forgetting too. Um, but related to that, a number of um, respondents told us about uh, the survivors' fears of calling the police if they had a criminal history themselves. And so I want to distinguish this. We, we've known for some time about concerns that police arrest victims when they respond to a domestic violence call. Um, and, and so we have developed policies to try to minimize the risk that, um, that a, a victim will be arrested. But what they were talking about was a different kind of problem, and that was that women who are um, who have um, histories of drug use or, or are perceived by the police to have histories of drug use, um, women who are involved in prostitution or, or, or are perceived by the police to be so, um, are receiving particularly hostile responses. Um, in fact, one, um, one advocate told us that um, when the uh, women that she works with um, who um, are sex workers or perceived by the police to be so, when they try to report um, a rape, the first thing the police do is run a warrant check to see if there's any outstanding warrants against her. Um, so we saw that, that, those kinds of intersections of bias really significantly. I'm talking a lot here, Heather. Should I just no, I'm, stop I'm for a minute? I'm some ignorance here, but um, when you talk about the first thing that police do is run a, a, a check, a background check on the person who's making the accusation, um, mm -hmm. do they do that for everything? No. I mean, I kind of would have thought that they would do that any time they were called for anything if they had the time. Am I naive? No, they don't. Ridiculous? They don't do that for every. They don't do that for every victim who reports. And what what it I mean what it means is that. The, the second thing we found were about collateral consequences of involvement with the police and how significant they are. And so the, this, is a, this is one of those. Um, if, you, um, if you believe that either the police are going to see you um, as a criminal um, or you believe that um, – or, in fact, you have a warrant out, which, you know, those are two different things, of course, that becomes an, uh, a barrier to seeking police protection and assistance. Um, we also saw very, very similar things with immigration. 
so um, a significant number of um, people. I'm trying to find the stat here, um, but a very That's significant right. number. You recall. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head these numbers, but a very significant number of our respondents told us that um, um, that the women that they worked with, um, whose immigration status was um, either not permanent. Um, or undocumented, and of course those are two different things, we're very concerned about calling the police. If, they, um, if they're undocumented, they're concerned that they're going to be reported um, as undocumented. And, the, and frankly, even if they're not, um, we know police are in some locales are re reporting anyway. Um, but they're also concerned that if they're, um, if they're arrested, then... Um, then they may become deportable even if they have status. So that was a, a major, a major um, barrier to seeking police assistance. The other barrier was um, that a significant number um, were concerned about child protection removing their children if they, um, yeah, if they contacted um, uh, the police. So you had sort of a, you know three groups. One who was concerned that either their own criminal offending or the the police bias that saw them as criminals um, because of the police perception of them would mean a hostile response and perhaps even an arrest. And then you had immigrants who were had those set of concerns, and you had uh, women who were concerned about child protection. Okay, and. I would say that women who have, I mean, we, we talk, you mentioned the women who are, are worried about their immigration status or, or you know, mm -hmm. that they would be terrified. But any woman, even if she has a squeaky clean background, would be terrified um, by by those three factors. And in fact, oh, yeah. abusers often use those things as, oh, as yeah. weapons to keep women in, in line, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, okay, all of that makes sense to me. Um but what so what do they do what do they what did the women report that they do what did the advocates report that these women do under those situations they obviously make some effort to get out of the situation or seek relief because they're contacting the the workers that made that filed the report information so what 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 happens to these these women well well many do not um, seek to involve the criminal justice system. Um, you know, so one of the questions we asked was, um, how, how many of the women do you work with contact the criminal justice system? And of course, that's, you know, sometimes contacts are made not by the victim. But how many of them seek the, um, out the uh, contact with the criminal justice system? And, um, and when they don't, why, why do they not? And, uh, and these were the, some of the major uh, reasons why women don't. So, you know, so for many, um, they seek uh, support and resolutions that are not, that don't involve the criminal justice system because it, it um, because of the, in part because of the collateral consequences, that's not the only reason. Um, and so they may um, separate, um, they may, um, or, you know, other women obviously um, uh, do other kinds of um, interventions that try to lessen the violence. Um, and right, so I mean, there there are a whole host of things that women do that are not um, necessarily involving the criminal justice system in trying to diminish violence and trying to um, change his behavior and trying to. Um, or alternatively, in trying to separate with safety, um, et cetera. I, okay. I, I would say right. one of the one of the primary our one of our primary, um, well, really two of our primary um, conclusions here would be um, one that it, when you're talking about training police and changing police behavior. You have to think of this in um, in that very intersectional way. I mean, when when the national attention on 
the um, racial bias of some police officers and some police units has been brought to our attention in such a forceful way by organizations like Black Lives Matter, you have to recognize that it's the same kind of police bias to some extent that's affecting responses to sexual assault and domestic violence. And, and that means that your approaches need to take that, those intersections into consideration. But beyond that is, in, in my view and um, in my reading of the, of the findings, we have developed far too much of a focus on a criminal justice response and less when we need to be addressing these other kinds of policy issues that um, weaken the effectiveness of a criminal justice response and make women more vulnerable. So Okay, explain that. Can, I'm not quite sure what you're sure. talking about there. Yeah, so we can make, for, let me give you, um, I mean, immigration is an example. So we can, try, we can train police, and we have, um, and that will make a difference. But as long as we have policies um, that encourage police to report to Homeland Security, to report to immigration, then um, training the police will not change that for women. Um, as long as we have um, the, the other thing I, I didn't mention is that a significant number of respondents told us that um, that victims don't call the police because they're also concerned about other kinds of um, collateral consequences, including uh, the loss of housing, employment, and welfare benefits. As long as we have economic policies that aren't sufficient to um, provide housing security and economic security, then changing police is a good thing, but it won't change that larger kinds of, of picture. So when we think about how we want to change police response, in my view, we need to be thinking much larger. We need to be thinking more, more structurally about all of the ways in which um, women and children are made more vulnerable to violence. Does that I make think sense? that's a good point. I think I think oftentimes on any kind of an issue, any kind of a problem, we think, well, we'll just change this this first responder. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll change them, and then if right. they're not changing the way we want them to, well, clearly they're just being recalcitrant and difficult and and prejudiced or biased or whatever. Mm -hmm. When in fact they're laboring under certain things and certain requirements and certain rules, uh, you know, um, that we need to be more sensitive to. I believe. I. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think that that's a, a, a wonderful approach to looking at these things. You know, I mean, we're very good about saying, well, you need to behave this way, but we don't look at why that person is behaving that way other than maybe their personal biases. Uh, we're not looking at the requirements that they're operating under. I, I remember years ago working at a hospital in Ohio. This was many, 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 many years ago, 110 years ago at least. And um, it, it was just a joke because we would have OSHA that would come in and say, okay, these emergency doors have to be kept unlocked. Then we'd have the, or, or the, these emergency doors would have to be locked. That was an OSHA requirement. And so we'd lock the doors. But then the fire inspector would come in and say, no, those doors have to remain unlocked. This is statute, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And so, I mean, it became a joke because, you know, as soon as, you know, one of those two uh, bodies would walk through the front door, there would immediately be this telephone triage where, okay, it's the OSHA people. Go and unlock those doors. You know I mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, okay, it's the fire people. Do the op, you know. Uh, and so I think sometimes it's a, that's a great example of how people don't operate in a vacuum. Most people don't say, well, I'm particularly prejudiced against uh, immigrants, and so therefore I'm going to behave this way. When, I mean, of course some of that happens, but we can't look at this as an isolated thing, that, okay, if we just train those people to be better at, and, and behave more appropriately in the way that we see it, then that will take care of the problem. And if that doesn't take care of the problem, they're just being very difficult, aren't they? So I, I really it, – it, Pleasing so to I, hear you talk about yeah. some of these greater issues yeah. that police are and yeah. first responders are operating under. Right, and and I and I I think that um, I think it's really important to take 
a structural approach. So what I mean by that is this, absolutely, I, I think that training and, um, and uh, training police officers to um, recognize um, their own implicit bias and, and um, working with police departments to um, train officers and have consequences for, for, uh, for bias, I think is really important. So I in no way diminish that. But when I'm talking about structural, I'm talking about policies. I'm not, I'm not so much focused on why police behave the way they do, though I think you're right. I think that is really that's a very useful and important thing. But I'm, I'm focused on the ways in which policies that are not police policies affect the circumstances for survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault, right? Okay. And so, to, right, so it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's um, both compatible with what you said in a slightly different focus, I think. Um, and that is, I think, too much of, of the um, feminist energy um, and, and has been put on trying to get a better police response. And that's... A, a good thing, but it has occupied a tremendous amount of our energy, and it and it um, and it has uh, and and a very disproportionate amount of our federal dollars have gone to criminal justice responses, rather than uh, the recognition that our economic policies, our um, the the lack of affordable housing, the lack of um, jobs, the very, very um, stringent and criminalizing response to immigration that has um, now occupied the country um, for the last uh, many years. Um, all of those policies have a deep relationship to the vulnerabilities to violence to the ways in which domestic violence and sexual assault occurs and 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 who is particularly vulnerable to those and so what i what what i see in this response um i mean in in um what i take away from the responses here that are about bias is really twofold one those of us who are organizing around domestic violence and sexual assault need to recognize our common cause with other community-based organizations like Black Lives Matter and the many other organizations that are doing that kind of work um, and recognize that many of the survivors who experience bias are, are, are just simply the mirror image of the other kinds of bias. But at the same time, we need to move out of advocacy around the criminal justice system and instead advocate in the strongest possible ways for changes in policies that provide more economic support for women and children and that, um, and that change immigration policies and child welfare policies that make women more vulnerable. So I see it as, as, as both, if that makes sense. The the yes. other thing I haven't had a had a chance to mention. I mean, the other the other thing we found too is that, and again, not this is not going to be a surprise to anybody who's been doing this work for a long time. And that is that um, respondents said that a, a significant number of women have um, goals that just don't align very well with the criminal justice system as it operates now. Either they don't want punishment um, for the uh, person who harmed them, they want the harm to stop, they don't want the person to be punished, they don't think that that's going to create the results or have the outcomes that they want, um, or they don't want the criminal justice system they, they fear that they'll lose control of the process if the criminal justice system is involved, that um, they won't be able to make decisions, put the brakes on, get what they want. And then others who said that um, they just thought the criminal system was too complicated or lengthy or trauma 
um, in inducing. So I, th- I think, yeah. So I mean, for the the other thing that that we call for is more investigation into um, alternative kinds of of responses from the criminal justice system, and and that might include, for example, restorative justice, and um, and then of course there are those who are working within communities to create community accountability models that don't involve the criminal justice system um, at at all. Yeah. Um, we in in your report, um, th- this one is a huge one. Uh, any woman who's gone through this with uh, chi- knows how huge child uh, custody and child protection oh, becomes yeah. in in these mm-hmm. kinds of situations. And the report indicated that 89% of of people contacted um, for the survey said that um, contact 89%. Um, um, uh, reported that contact with police resulted in involvement with child protective services either often or sometimes. That's and right. that's also that's such a catch 22 for women because they can be nailed by the courts for not protecting their children, but they can be nailed by the courts for not allow, or they can be nailed by the 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 uh, child protective services if they don't protect the child from an abuser, but they can be nailed from the, by the courts if they don't allow the abuser access to the children. I mean, it's such a – so many of these scenarios are such catch-22s for women. That's exactly I mean, right. Yeah. That's I, exactly I, it, it right. Just, and and if yeah. you and, – and that's exactly right. And if you um, – um, some of your listeners may be familiar with the work of Dorothy Roberts, who's a, a law professor who's done a great deal of – of research on um, the interaction or the intersection of the child support system um, and and the lives of uh, poor African American women and the likelihood of um, having your child removed is much much higher um, in African American households um, than it is in 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 other households much disproportionately so. So, wow. you, you, right. So you, so you have you have both this domestic violence system, if you will, that um, creates sometimes rules, and if not rules, then incentives for for the removal of children, even when uh, without offering uh, the kinds of supports that you need. And then you have that intersecting, if you will, with um, these kinds of um, biases that are much more likely to see African American mothers, uh, poor poor mothers, as being um, unable to protect their children, unwilling to protect their children. Yeah, yeah, and that's an interesting uh, choice of words: unwilling or unable. And oftentimes they're kind of muddled in in the evaluator's mind, aren't they? That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. 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 Um, excuse me. Uh, in the um, report that came out from the DV hotline, which kind of, as I said at the beginning, kind of substantiates the, the mm-hmm. information that you found, discovered in your report, um, the, the, um, their survey, the hotline survey, said that of respondents, of, of women who were calling them, 60% did not want police involvement. 60% mm-hmm. did not. Right. As far as wanting police uh, involvement, now they didn't break it down into why, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as much as your report did. But would you say that that's consistent with with what your um, survey respondents had to say? It is very much consistent. Not even wanting police involvement at all. It is very. It's very consistent with what they said. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the hotline. You know, you have to appreciate that. Um, someone calling the hotline is likely to be um, in an emergency situation, so they quite wisely um, had a very abbreviated kind of survey. Um, and and yeah. what's really quite wonderful, really, is the number. They had a very high response rate. Even under those circumstances, women wanted to tell them, um, and, and, and they found and they found these very high numbers that don't want to involve the police at all. Yeah. Well, and what they also found was that even after calling the police, once they did call the, rep- the police, mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. then 80% of those said that they were extremely afraid to call police in the future. Right. Because of that police response. So, and I and I want to be, you know, I really want to, uh, you know, uh, um, cover my words by saying that, you know, this is not a damnation of police. Um, I, I mean, this whole show is not about just, you know, oh, bad, bad police officers. You know, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. operating in their own, you know, within their it, it's a problem. It's not a, a condemnation, in my view. Um, well, and 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 police response varies dr- dramatically, not only between officers but between um, jurisdictions. Maybe more importantly, between jurisdictions and leadership makes a huge difference um, oh, in, in how yeah, in how police respond. I, mean, I, I live. I live six miles from one county, and I'm in another county, and and it's night and day. That six miles makes a huge difference in the response of police and the response of the courts. I mean, it's just it's a huge difference. So, you know, it, it's it's difficult to make uh, some sort of sweeping generalization about police. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that that the um, hotline um, uh, research showed was extreme fear of retaliation. Mm-hmm. Of, of by victims getting <clears throat> getting police involved, was your information supportive of that? Did you also find that retaliation by the offender is a is a huge uh, concern? We did. Our our focus was on um, the focus of our report is primarily on police response um, and on um, on policy. So you know governmental responses that affect. Um, uh, reporting, but we did have a number of people speak about retaliation as being um, an important factor um, in, in addition to the ones that I've mentioned, absolutely. Okay. Now, yeah. let's talk a Can, little bit about... I, okay. You go ahead. No, go. Oh, I was just... I, I just... Um, talking about police hostility, and I, I just... I have a quote here from one of our respondents. I, I thought I might read, read sure. um, for your listeners. Um, It says, the majority of my clients who need law enforcement assistance will call once but not twice. Their first experience usually turns them off to the police as a form of help. Clients have reported insensitive comments ranging from, didn't you think this was going to happen, to what did you do to make him so mad? Um, But more commonly, they tell me they call the police to report violations of restraining orders and, and are told there's nothing we can do. Well, and certainly, you know, when you're talking coercive control, police can't do a darn thing usually. Um, and so much of abuse is coercive control. So that's a whole different show, isn't it? Um, well, you know, it is. I mean, sometimes that coercive control, oftentimes that coercive control is every bit as intimidating, if not more so, than a, a push or a shove or a, a punch in the stomach. Um, and there's not a thing police can do about that usually. Um your report talked about existing mechanisms. What do you mean by existing mechanisms? We were talking about the the number of um, projects that exist. Some, many of them, VAWA funded, not all, um, to try to change the and improve the criminal justice response. So um, we ask. Uh, respondents about their views on what they thought was working and, and what they thought needed improvement. One of our one of our um, one, one thing that came through um, quite clearly is that um, the majority of our respondents were a part of regular meetings that involved police service providers sometimes prosecutors and others. So um, whether this was um, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, assault counsel, or you know, the different regions have different names for this. Um, but uh, 70% said that those meetings were sometimes or often, I mean, sometimes helpful or very helpful. Um, so we, we found a very strong response there. Most people thought those meetings were helpful. Um, okay. Right, and a number of other people um, talked about the introduction of um, other kinds of programs that would uh, create teams. So we we didn't find any co uh, coalescence around any one program. So 
so I can just give you examples. Um, so there were those that um, thought that the lethality assessment programs that they'd initiated with police were very helpful. Um, others had created team uh, response, team TEAM <laughs> responses, where they had an advocate who was working closely, perhaps in the police station or, or in some other way working very closely with police and they thought um, that was helpful um, as well. Um, the, when asked about what they thought needed to be done, um, a number talked about increase, increasing the training and, and, the, um, and the importance of the training addressing um, uh, bias in terms of racial bias and other and LGBT and other forms of bias that it was important that training on domestic violence and sexual assault takes those um, biases um, into consideration. Um, but right. all of these mechanisms that you're talking about involve basically training the police or changing the way the police do do things. They're not outside of the typical police response, right? Or expecting a police for them, response, or for are them, they? Yes, for the most part, that's right. It's the it's the it's the authors of the study. <laughs> that would be uh -huh. me and and, <laughs> and my colleagues. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes. Um, you know, we're we're the ones who um, um, read the data um, that um, that we gathered from this survey and said, um, you know, one of the primary lessons that we read from this is changing these other policies um, that I've already mentioned around immigration and child welfare and economic security. And in fairness to our respondents, it, you know, it, it could be that it didn't occur to them to, to um, list changes outside of police as a recommendation on a survey that said it was about policing. Um, but certainly that's one of our takeaways. Um, the, the other, uh, the other, kind of policy that I haven't mentioned are the, the policies that what we loosely, uh, that create what we loosely refer to as mass incarceration. Um, but I'm talking about the um, very hyper kind of surveillance and um, policing that occurs in some, um, intensely in some urban communities of color that makes it so much more likely that you have um, um, a substantial number of people who have a record, who have a criminal record, and therefore are um, much more likely to be both subject to um, increased police bias, um, as illustrated by the responses on our survey and by other data, um, okay. and who um, have another reason to not call, who are fearful right. of police. All right. And and that's um, and it that's sort of it that's one of those other policy intersections that I think doesn't get enough attention. So basically when we're talking about from the standpoint of this report when we talk about existing mechanisms and what can be helpful um you know the the whole trend that we've seen for the last several years on a community response community response teams rather than just a police response is basically mm -hmm. what what the report is kind of saying is is good, so it was it's kind of like carry on, you know. Um, um, but you also the report also recommended some changes in police training. I'm trying to flip my page here, and mm -hmm. there we go. Um, so um, police training, supervision, and hiring was one of the recommendations that they made. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, we had we had some of the um, we had we had a. A number of people spoke to hiring, um, and some thought that um, diversifying the police force was, was important um, in diminishing bias. So diversification both along sex lines, more women in policing, um, and diversi primarily diversification in terms of race was what people talked about. Um, so um, others talked about, about hiring, but did so in a um, in a in a more um, oh, attitudinal, I suppose, kind of way. I mean, saying that we really need to please, we really need to rethink how police understand their um, responsibility, and that might mean hiring a different kind of person. Um, so those those were the two 
um, primary kinds of things that people said about about changing the hiring. Um, changing the training, I've, I've mentioned, and in, in one of the major findings there on changing the training was people um, with some significant number talked about that um, training police needed to incorporate um, anti-bias kinds of measures, LGBT and um, race being um, two particular ones that people talked about. But also, the, the one of the points they brought out was to, to train about so that police can understand trauma. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and and I thought that that was a valid That's point true. as well because people who have not experienced trauma, or even if people who have experienced one type of trauma over another, don't necessarily understand how all-consuming that response can be for an individual. How you know, I, and I thought that that was kind of a good point that you know the trauma sensitivity, trauma training as well. I mean, I think we often think of cultural sensitivity and bias training and things like that, but uh, to, to really understand more the, the psychological impact of trauma, I thought that was would be a really helpful approach, and, and the report did mention that as well. One of the it other does, things, yeah. yeah, one of the other things that the report mentions is to strengthen police accountability. Now, mm -hmm. I have no member of my family who's a police officer. I've, I've never been a police officer. But nevertheless, I have a great deal of uh, respect and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for police. And I, I think oftentimes police get just blamed for things that maybe, mm -hmm. you know, they shouldn't be sometimes. Yeah, of course, you know. Some, but sometimes I think that they're all kind of painted with this brush that, that they're insensitive and they're biased and they're this, that, and the other thing. Police accountability can also hamper things, can it not? So how did this report think police accountability would be a better thing? How could it be handled so that it would strengthen uh, response to victims of sexual assault and domestic violence? Well, I mean, so let, let me answer that in two, in two ways. So the strength in police accountability was one of the um, – was a category of um, a very significant number of responses from our respondents, um, and you know some, for example, gave um, concrete ideas. For example, um, that there should be a, a committee that tracks police responses, um, and um, in some sort of systematic kind of way. Um, some locales in the country do that already, um, but many do not. Um, some, many talked about accountability in terms of um, having uh, input into who is hired at the highest level. Um, they, these saw that the uh, attitude on the force um, in, in these respondents' belief is that it's very, very much influenced by the tone that's set at the very highest level. And so that should be an area for, um, for advocacy and input. One, one of the things that, um, that we found, too, is, well, I told you 70%, um, most, most of our respondents, the majority, were aware had a, a regular meeting, as I said, between um, police and advocates and, and service providers, et cetera, on an ongoing based basis in part to um, encourage um, police accountability and, and to work on protocols and find gaps in, in protocols and services. And most of them, as I said, found those very helpful. We asked another question, and that was we, we asked people if they were aware if if in their community there were other kinds of police accountability mechanisms such as civilian complaint review boards, for example, or um, some places have a police ombudsman or a police auditor, um, um, and then some have civilian complaint review boards which have varying, depending on where you are, varying levels of, of independence and certainly varying levels of authority and power. Um, 72% of our respondents said that they didn't know and, and I, whether anything like that existed in, in their locale. Um, and we also asked if folks knew about the um, Department of Justice ability to investigate um, gender-biased policing, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and, and again, 61% said no, they didn't know about that. 
So I think one of the things that, that we can do is to uh, train and um, educate uh, folks in the field who are working directly with survivors about the other kinds of alternatives to regular monthly meetings with police to try to press, put pressure on police to change their responses. Um, and, and that pressure might come, it depends obviously on one's locale, but it might come from a civilian, being very active in a civilian review board. Um, it might come, uh, a, a colleague of mine um, and friend Deborah Weissman, who's at UNC, um, talked about how with the, with the um, lawsuit on stop and frisk in, in New York City, that resulted, you might know, in um, an agreement and brought together activists really from and, and service providers from all over the city to hammer out um, a more uh, racially um, uh, equitable response to um, police findings on the street. That there were no, Deborah's point was that there were no domestic violence people at that table. And wow. So yeah, so you know, so there's so part I think, you know, part of part of my message and I'm not saying this came from our respondents. I I I told you what what they recommended. So this is this is just me <laughs> talking. But but so um but but part of what what I think is that um it's really important to work with uh, for people who are on the ground who are doing advocacy to think about these other kinds of mechanisms for um, moving police um, and and not to be not to think that regular council meetings are sort of the only way in which you can do that sometimes pressure sometimes it's really good to have a a good relationship and you you get something done sometimes you need to move out sometimes you need exactly. to move from pressure and and we've lost that we don't we don't do that um very so, much yeah, and, and, and i think things, we need to do that you know these, these existing mechanisms that you said so many of the respondents were unaware of you know com civilian complaint review boards or police review boards or independent police right. auditors or a police ombudsman or the department of justice investigating gender biased policing all of those are options now for a victim to try and go through everything that she's going through and file complaints that are that would be totally unrealistic however advocates might be exactly. able to do those kinds of things. Exactly. So I think that's a good point. I'm looking at the clock here, and I don't think that, that it would be fair for us to um, uh, conclude this conversation with anything other than a few good points. And uh, some of the respondents, and again, this is from the um, domestic violence hotline, but I suspect that it's pretty similar with what uh, you saw in your report. Um, what some of the respondents said that was most helpful for police, uh, provide information about options, including safety mm -hmm. suggestions. Provide tangible yes. help, uh, like helping me get a protective order, transporting me to safety, or connecting me with a victim advocate. Arresting or charging the abuser. Believing me or validating that what had happened to me was a crime. So those mm -hmm. four things, are, I think, are being done a lot by police. I think that are reflected by some of these surveys as being the most helpful. And I do mm -hmm. like to end our show with a quote, and this one is also from a victim who responded to a survey. They made me, they, the police, made me feel that I was not to blame or at fault and not crazy. And mm -hmm. I think that's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Donna, for being with us and explaining this report. Now, if somebody wants to see the report, a hotline, a web page that they could go to is ACLU Women's Rights Project, and it's called the, uh, you can go to it, www.aclu.org slash report, and uh, you can get slash highlights dash responses dash field. So if you got all that, just look up ACLU report. Thank you for joining us. Next week we're going to have Dorothy Edwards, who's the executive director, Dr. Dorothy Edwards, of the Green Dot Campaign, which is a project, a program that was started because they believe that by standards that everyone can be involved and that it is possible 
to create a violence-free society. So we're going to hear about her approach and what Green Dot Campaign does. Thank you so much for joining us, Donna. Thank you for being with us. You gave us a good explanation of this report and some wonderful information. I hope you'll join us again for the next report. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank on you, Heather. Three Women, Three Ways, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> 